We are uh, continuing our series now on beautiful resistance, and today uh, the subject is honor must resist contempt. Honor must resist contempt. So I want to read a passage to you from Luke chapter 18, starting with the ninth verse, reading through verse 14. They also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and they viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Father, let your word really grip our hearts today. Lord, this word can transform us combined with the moving of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And so we set ourselves in a posture today to receive and to be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. Several weeks ago, I had a dream, and uh, I, I believe that God speaks in dreams. That is very clear from Scripture. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament bear that out. However, I am really not much of a dreamer. Seldom do I remember my dreams at all. I don't remember things that happen when I'm awake, let alone my dreams. <laughs> but I seldom remember my dreams, but when God gives me a dream, I I, generally, I know it's God, and I, I am acutely aware of it when I awaken. So at the risk of, of sounding uh, spooky natural, let me share a dream that really rocked me about two weeks ago. In the dream, Wendy and I were invited to the home of a former president of the United States. I will not give you his name because I don't want you to think in a partisan way today. <laughs> I want you to think about your heart. So go ahead and think about a president, Republican or Democrat, that would make you feel contempt, even hatred. You got that person in your mind? <laughs> well, Wendy and I went to the home, and we were very casual about the event. Um, it was as though we were invited to the home of one of you. We, we, we went to the home with expectations, though, that the home was going to be this palatial mansion. And we found they, they lived in a large home, but it was not overly impressive. In fact, it needed some updating. And we felt very welcome there as we would in one of your homes. Our hosts, the president and the former first lady, were very warm, very conversational, and as I was speaking to the former president about everyday things, my mind was racing about the attitude 
that I had about him when he was in office. And it wasn't good. I disagreed with almost every one of his policies. I felt that he was arrogant and cold-hearted. And I had heard stories from a friend of a friend of a friend who worked in the Secret Service and described how terrible it was to work for that president. We usually call unfounded stories gossip, but it didn't seemed to matter to me at the time. I felt justified in my attitude. My dream continued with my conversation with him. While I was talking with him, this conviction came on me about the attitude of contempt that I had to this president. And finally, it reached a point during the conversation that I knew I needed to be honest with him and I needed to repent. And so I said, you know, I seldom agreed with anything that you said, but I spoke things about you that were likely very untrue. I did not respect the office that you held, and I felt contempt towards you in my heart. And I'm sorry for my hard attitude and my words. Please forgive me. He graciously forgave me, and the visit continued. It didn't rattle him at all. And when it was time to go home, they said goodbye to me and to Wendy, and we thanked them for lunch. And as we drove away, we talked about how nice the visit was, how warmly we were treated, and how we looked forward to our next visit with them. I woke from my dream about 5 a.m. with a heavy heart. There's a lot of emotion in this dream, and that's often how I know it's a God dream, because I I feel intense emotion about it. And I went to my living room, and I sat there and had a session of repentance about what was in my heart toward that former president. Some hours later, I received a call from Pastor Johnny. He wanted to talk to me about the preaching schedule for the series And he said, would I be willing to preach on the 21st of February? And I said, what's the subject? And he said, honor must resist contempt. So here I am. Let's begin by defining the word contempt. According to the dictionary, it is a state of mind of one who despises. When we have contempt toward another person, we despise that person. We use the word contempt in the legal system. A person that may be accused of a crime and is issued a summons to appear before a judge, if that person ignores that judge, doesn't show up for the hearing, he is considered in contempt of court, right? Contempt of court. He is despising the judge. He's despising the laws of the land. He's despising the entire judicial system. Contempt carries with it an attitude of strongly disapproving of someone, a despising of another person. Jesus tells us a, a convicting story about contempt, and I read it to you, and we see from the story that contempt might be considered by some as a respectable sin, if you know what I mean, a respectable sin. There there are certain sins that we don't commit and perhaps never even come close to committing, and we have no desire to indulge in them. But contempt 
is a respectable sin. I mean, we're used to it. We're used to holding it in our hearts. It can show up in people who are outwardly pretty good and moral people. And we are especially vulnerable to contempt in this season in our nation. We are extremely vulnerable. This is the story of a righteous man and an unrighteous man, a saint and a sinner, a hero and a villain, a Pharisee and a publican. We all know who the Pharisees were. They were a sect of Israelites that was birthed in the intertestamental period, that time between Malachi and Matthew, at 400 years of seeming prophetic silence. Israel was under the heavy oppression of the pagans, and they revolted. It was a a military revolt against Greek oppression at first. When the Jews once again had control of their land, this group of godly-minded, loyal followers of God and followers of the law emerged, and they were called the Pharisees. By the time of Jesus, it was estimated there were 6,000 of them, and by the time of Jesus, the Israelites were now under Roman rule. These people were zealous for God, zealous for the law. They started out with good motives, with a healthy purpose. The problem was that the zeal that they had in the beginning turned into a performance-based relationship with God. The word Pharisee actually means a separated one, one who is set apart from everybody else. So a spiritual pride came into the situation, and they became deeply self-righteous. Still, the people respected, the average people respected their outward devotion uh, to not only living the law of Moses, but they added their own laws to it. And in a sense, building a fence around the law so they would be doubly sure they would obey the law. You had to admire their obedience. You had to, to admire their spiritual performance. Now, a publican was also a Jew, but there was a problem. The publicans worked in Jesus' day for the Roman government. The publicans were the IRS agents of the day, and they played dirty. They charged far more than the Romans required for taxes, and they became rich on what they kept for themselves, and you can see why they would be so despised. In the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, Jesus is taking the two extremes of the culture and placing them in the scene in the temple at Jerusalem together. Both of them are in the temple at the same time. They both went there to pray, and Jesus described the attitude of both men. Notice the Pharisee, in the Pharisee, two characteristics of contemptuous people come right out of the text. First of all, a contemptuous person is self-righteous. Verse 9 says, he told a parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. You will never have contempt toward another person unless you think you're better than them. They trusted in their own righteousness and then looked down at others. Notice that he's telling the parable directly to those whose hypocrisy he was exposing. He told the parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Now, when it comes to self-righteousness, Jesus, is real, he minces no words. He was always in the face 
of the Pharisees. You know, but you will never struggle with contempt until you first think that you're all that. You won't have contempt unless you think you are better than. Contempt is described in certain translations in the Scripture of looking down on other people. I think the NIV and others just say they trusted in themselves, looked down on others. So you are not in a in a position to feel contempt if you are humble. You really need to get yourself up there. You need to elevate yourself so that you can look down. You can't have contempt without self-exaltation. I have to first exalt myself. There is no contempt without feelings of superiority. That's the first thing we see about contemptuous people. The second thing we see is a contemptuous person compares himself to others. You'll never be a contemptuous person without comparison. Jesus said it again, Luke 18 and 12. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Notice, first of all, the pride that is in his heart. It says, the Pharisee stood up and prayed this, I love these words, to himself. (laughs) He prayed this to himself. He was praying to himself about himself, basically. And although he's talking to God, I'm sure that his prayer, although God probably heard it, his prayer never made it to heaven as we use that, that language sometimes. God was not impressed. And he compares himself, this publican, to others who are swindlers, unjust, who did the sins that he didn't do, that he didn't struggle with. You know, it's easy to pat ourselves in the back for not doing the sins that we really don't want to do anyway. (laughs) So he compares himself. And notice, he doesn't compare himself to a biblical hero. He doesn't get up there and compare himself to devout men like Moses or Samuel or Elijah. He compares himself to a fellow Israelite who happens to have a terrible reputation in town. That's who he compares himself to. When you exalt yourself above others and compare yourself to others, you become a contemptuous Pharisee. And Jesus continues with the story, and he says in verse 13, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven. The man was so humbled by his sin. He was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And I tell you, said Jesus, this man went from his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. The posture of the Pharisee is absolute humility and brokenness. He doesn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He beats his breast, and his prayer is, God, be merciful to me. And in the Greek, and some translations catch this, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Not a sinner, the sinner. I am the sinner. As Jesus tells this story, He judges between the two 
And only one of those two men in the temple praying walks away justified. The publican, the tax collector, goes away justified. The Pharisee doesn't. Don't miss that word justified. It's huge in the New Testament. Same word as righteousness. Right standing with God. One of the most important things about your position that we were talking about earlier is that you're righteous before God in Christ. To be declared righteous. The Pharisee goes home dirtier than he came. The humble publican came dirty, and he went away clean. He went away righteous. Self-righteousness is the opposite of Christ-righteousness. And Jesus ends the parable with these words, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be, be exalted. To use relevant language today, the vaccine against contempt is humility and honor. And humility is not a fruit of the Spirit. You don't find it listed in Galatians chapter 5. It is not a gift of the Spirit. You don't find it listed in 1 Corinthians 12. Jesus said, he who humbles himself will be exalted. Humility is your responsibility, not God's. And it's really critical to know that. It is not God's responsibility. You humble yourself. Now, God may allow circumstances in your life that humiliate you in some way, but you are still responsible in response to what's going on in your life to humble yourself in the midst of those circumstances. God will not impart humility to you as a fruit of the Spirit. You are responsible to humble yourself. And so contempt is, is deadlier in our nation today than any pandemic. And contempt right now in this nation is growing at an alarming rate. And the vaccine against it is honor. Honor. Before I talk about honor, I want to illustrate a little bit how contempt is at work in our current culture in a very blatant way. I'm going to really shoot straight with you today. Since my dream had to do with politics, I'm just going to continue in that vein, okay? In the midst of this political mayhem in D.C., we are called out by Jesus' words. I have been alarmed, and I mean this, I have been alarmed at the contempt in my heart. And in the contempt that I've seen in the body of Christ at large. For starters, we, we're experiencing an unprecedented cultural war, and the main manifestation on both sides of that cultural war is contempt. Some of us think that our side of it is more righteous than the other side. It isn't. Contempt is contempt, no matter where you're at on the political spectrum. And I live in a, in, with an awareness that it's the church's responsibility to carry the culture of the kingdom into the nation. Would you agree with that? I believe it is. It is our responsibility. Jesus said that we are the salt and the light, which means we preserve, we flavor, 
we illuminate, shine the light on the world in which we live. In other words, as the church goes, so goes the nation. And in our, our current political climate, the church, in my opinion, seems to be leading the way in contempt. The members of the body of Christ are turning on one another. We are witnessing right now what I've been calling the prophet wars. Some of the prophets prophesied that Trump would win a second term. When that didn't happen, some of them apologized. And the ones who were still clinging to Trump's victory got mad at the ones who apologized, and the prophet wars began. And the prophets are bickering with one another and trying to justify themselves and looking with contempt, in some cases, toward one another. Now the church is divided in two camps on the issue. That's just one of many of the issues that we're divided on. Last week, one of the leaders in the Word of Faith movement died of COVID-19 at the age of 89 years old. Some of the comments that followed the article that I read about his death were horrendous. Written by Christians, or at least those who call themselves Christians. One person was certain that this faith preacher was in hell because of his teaching. Just, I know he's in hell, basically. It's a bold statement. Others criticized some of his brothers who, who claimed that he would be healed, and when he wasn't, they called those brothers false prophets. Now, do I agree with everything that man taught? No. Am I the, the doctrinal policeman in America for the body of Christ? No, I'm not. Neither is anyone else. Some of these apologists that you catch online, we need apology from some apologists. We really do. It's, it's getting bad sometimes. But I'm not a doctrinal policeman. This man, though, built his church back in the 70s. And when he built his church, he could have built it anywhere. He chose the poor section of L.A. And he, and he lifted up the poor and the helpless, and he led thousands of people to Christ, and he left behind a church of 28,000 members. 28,000 souls are worshiping there today. I used to joke when people, fellow pastors would criticize the megachurch pastors, and I would say, you know what, I, I'm going to start criticizing when we hit 20,000. But he left behind 28,000 members. Can't we just be happy for that? <laughs> no, we have to place them lower than us. We have to find something in their life to push them down while we exalt ourselves so that we are looking with contempt. And it's a deadly thing. The church sets the tone in the culture, whether we like it or not. And sadly, our tone is often contemptuous. And we're doing it in the political realm as well. We are cursing instead of blessing. And I want to say, all of this rhetoric Please, I'm appealing to you. It is not helping. It is not helping anything. We are not advancing the kingdom. We are not representing the nature of Christ. We are not a good witness. We are not salt and light. We are not helping when we express contempt toward another person. We are part of the problem, 
rather than solution. We're helping to hold things in place that are evil. Is there evil in this land? Absolutely. You see it every day on the news. How might we be tempted to be like the Pharisees in the parable? I mean, who would you consider a publican in your day? Is it a Republican, maybe? (laughs) Do you look upon Republicans with contempt? Or is a publican a Democrat in your view? You publican, Democrat, you? God is about kingdom. And I've said this before several times, but God is not a Republican or a Democrat. He's king. He is king over a monarchy called the kingdom of God. His desire is to rule in the hearts of men. And when he conquers the hearts of a few men in those parties, and they submit to his lordship, and they share his love with their fellow party members, then the kingdom of God can invade the party and then invade the nation. But that's not going to happen in a culture of contempt. Now, I want to let you know what I'm not saying. This doesn't mean we don't have political opinions. It does not mean that we should avoid politics altogether. God knows we need more Christians in politics, not less. We need more. And I have pretty strong opinions politically about things like abortion and morality and economics and foreign policy. And I am free to hold those opinions, those points of view, but I am not free to view the people who hold contrary views with contempt. I'm not free to do that. I'm free to disagree. I'm free to even use my voice. In fact, they came to Jesus, the Pharisees came to Jesus in Luke 13, and they were uncomfortable with him being around, so they were trying to manipulate him. And they said, Jesus, you better get out of here because Herod is looking for you. And Jesus said, you go tell that fox that I'm casting out demons and doing miracles, and on the third day, I'm going to finish my course. Okay? He, he called that political leader a fox. <laughs> Later, in, in the book of Revelation, John, the beloved, describes in, in Revelation 13, he describes Nero, the Roman emperor, and he calls him the beast. He, he's, he's using code language there. And he assigns a number. He reveals the name of the beast, the name of Nero Caesar, by the word, by the letters, the number 666. By the way, that's, throw this in for free. That's not a future antichrist. That's happened already, okay? And so he, he actually calls him out and, and talks about the wicked things that he did. And so as a Christian, you can strongly disagree with others. Politically, you can volunteer for your favorite political party. I encourage you to do that. You can call attention to the issues of the day. You can promote a biblical worldview as best you can. You can even laugh at the political satire that's on the web. I personally, I can't take it, Babylon B. I get those emails, I just crack up. They're so funny. They, attack, they kind of attack both sides of the political spectrum, and they're hilarious. I love satire. That's why I. I like that stuff. It's kind of like the Mad Magazine for some of you older people, the Mad Magazine of Christianity today. 
You can laugh at those things. You can speak your opinion, but you can't hold contempt in your heart toward people. You can't do that as a Christian. The dream that I had that I shared earlier did not change my political views at all. Not a bit. I still stand for biblical morality, for the truth of God's Word, but I can no longer hold contempt in my heart for the people who perpetrate the things I disagree with. I have contempt for their views, but I am no longer free to hold contempt in my heart toward them as people. The cure for contempt is honor. In the New Testament, the word means this, to assign value, to prize. Honor is the recognition of the value and the significance of another person. And that means every person. In his book, Beautiful Resistance, John Tyson points out that in the church world, too often honor go uphill in your leaders. While the Bible encourages that kind of honor in various passages, the fact is that everyone in the church is worthy of honor. And that is also true in the world in which we live. Jesus honored some of the lowliest, most insignificant people that he encountered, as the publican and Pharisee parable demonstrates. You might think that certain people have shown no reason to value them. You look at their views and and think to yourself, that politician, there's no reason why I should ever value that person. But listen, if I understand the Scriptures correctly, Jesus died for that person. And if Jesus attached that much value to an individual, no matter how wicked they are, who am I to feel otherwise about them? In my dream, my casual conversation with the former president showed me that he was a person of value. I began to see the value in his life. And I realized as we talked that he had been shaped by his past. Certain things had happened to him that formed him into the person he was and the policies that he espoused. And instead of looking with contempt at people, we should understand that they are a product of their past. You know, folks, you can only give what you got. All you have to give is what you got, unless God intervenes and heals your heart. As a parent, the only thing you can give your kids is what you got from your parents. Only when God intervenes can that change. And some people weren't given much. And you just don't know why people act the way they do. You know, when you're sitting in a restaurant and your waitress seems aloof to your needs or is in a bad mood, give her a break. I used to think, you know, I'm gonna, somebody ought to tell the manager about the bad attitude of that waitress. And one day I looked at a grumpy waitress and I thought, you know what? I have no idea what she's facing in her life. I have no idea if she has a terminally ill child at home. I have no idea if her husband beats her or just left her with the kids. I have no idea what she's facing. So instead of punishing people like that, honor them. Look for a way for that 
bad waitress, so to speak, they're bad in terms of their skills, look for a way to bless them. Tip them big. Say something nice to them. In his book, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey tells the story of a train ride that he took into New York City. He was enjoying a, a peaceful, reflective time, and then the train stopped at a stop, and the doors opened, and a father and his kids boarded the train. The children began to shout and throw things and cause a major disturbance in the otherwise peaceful train. And when he couldn't take it any longer, Covey challenged the man, and he said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. The man lifted his gaze, and as they were just as though he were just now becoming conscious of the situation, of the noise that the kids were making. And he said, oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think. And I guess they don't know how to handle it either. So you don't know. And Covey writes, Can you imagine what I felt in that moment? My paradigm shifted. Suddenly I saw things differently. I behaved differently. My irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or my behavior. My heart was filled with this man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife died. Oh, I'm sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? Everything changed, he said, in an instant. But how can I honor crooked politicians? (laughs) Before I read the answers of the apostles Peter and Paul in the Scripture, let me introduce you to the crooked politician they lived under. I already mentioned his name. His name was Nero Caesar. He was a nutcase. Nero made our corrupt politicians look like saints. Honestly. He was so evil, he murdered, just for starters, his mother and both of his wives, just for starters. According to the Roman historian Tacitus, Nero blamed the fire of Rome on Christians. When Rome burned, you remember, and supposedly Nero fiddled while Rome burned. We don't know if that's true or not. But we do know that he blamed the fire that destroyed so much of Rome on the Christians. And as a result, the historians say the Christians were covered with the skins of wild animals and torn apart by dogs. Some were crucified Some were burned as torches to light the night. They took Christians, dipped them in tar, and while Nero had these wild, bizarre parties around his palace, the light for the night parties was provided by torched Christians whose bodies were burning. Furthermore, according to Lactantius, an early Christian author, he wrote these words, Nero crucified Peter, and slew Paul. This is the guy responsible 
for the deaths of a couple of our heroes. And with that man on the throne, Peter and Paul wrote the following about the government that executed them. I mean, they wrote it before they executed them. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Just let the Scripture speak to us. This is what's, it's not really what I say, it's what the Word of God says that's most important. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to Nero as the supreme authority or to governors who have been sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. For it is God's will but that by doing good should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people. But don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. This really struck me. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. We can use our freedom of speech for a cover-up for the evil that's in our heart, the contempt that's in our heart toward people, toward leaders. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God Honor, there's that word. Lift up, honor, Nero, the emperor. Romans 13, verse 1, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except that which God has established. Wait a minute, let's rewind here. Election results, God established them? That's what it says. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and you'll be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. God's servant, same word we use when we talk about ministers, pastors, leaders in the church. He's God's servant for you, for good. If you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers don't bear the sword for no reason. They're God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible possible punishment, not just because you're going to get in trouble, but as a matter of conscience. If you want to clear your conscience, submit to authority. This is also why you pay taxes to the IRS, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe tax, pay tax. If revenue, then revenue. If you owe respect, then respect. If you owe, here's the word again, honor, then honor them. One final passage, a shorter one, 1 Timothy 2. Therefore I exalt, first of all, that you make supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings for everyone, for kings and for all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty, for this is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior. Do you know something? That president that I dreamed about, 
I prayed for him regularly. And I, and I actually intentionally signed myself, because I didn't like him, I signed myself up to an email list so I would get prayer requests every day for the president. And I didn't pray them every day, but I prayed regularly for my president. And I still had contempt in my heart toward him. And this says, not only pray for them, this is tough. Be thankful for them. <laughs> We're supposed to be thankful for all the blessings, the things that we have. That's wonderful. We're told here, be thankful for those rulers. Be thankful. And I ask today as I wrap up, what would happen in our nation if Christians just did this? We don't have to compromise our moral or political views. We don't have to stop supporting our favorite candidate. We don't have to stop working to help those we would like to see elected. We don't have to abandon our political party. What if we just did what Peter and Paul commanded us to do? As Christians, we can be as politically involved as our consciences allow, but we can't be contemptuous in our hearts because when we are, we are not mirroring the image of Jesus. The Christians in North Korea, I read about several years ago, of a man who had the privilege, and I'll wrap up with this, a man who had the privilege of interviewing a number of Christians who live in North Korea under the dictator Kim Jong-un. This man has killed Christians by crushing them under steamrollers, by hanging them on crosses over a fire, by all kinds of brutal methods that he has killed Christians. And I ask you as a free-spirited American, <laughs> which we're good at, if you were a Christian under Kim Jong-un's dictatorship, what would you pray for? What would your prayer life look like? I know me, I would pray for freedom to come. I would pray for political change. I would pray maybe even for the death of the supreme leader. The North Korean Christians who were surveyed said, we don't pray for a change in regime. We pray to be able to live according to God's truth. We pray for more of Christ and to mirror more of Christ in our lives. Some surveys say that at least half Americans of, of Americans claim to be born again. That's probably high. What if only half of half, 25%, are real followers of Jesus. And what if we just did what Scripture tells us to do? I am disgusted by what I see in American politics. I'm disgusted with it. But I can choose to be part of the solution rather than part of the problem. As Christians, we are Christians before we are Americans. That has to come first. And when those two identities collide, our biblical convictions must override our political convictions. I urge you to pray, to stand for your convictions and be as politically involved as you want to be or feel called to be. But if you can't do it without contempt in your heart, then you're better off just praying and not being involved.
I close with Philippians 2 and verse 3. Powerful verse. Let nothing, let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem the other better than themselves. That's honor. That's not looking down at others. That's exalting every other person as better than yourself. If we did that, we'll see a change in our nation. Let's not be part of the problem in American politics. Let's be part of the answer. Let me pray for you. Father, our hearts are, are humbled today by the Word of God. As you drop the plumb line next to our hearts, and, oh, Lord, I saw the crookedness of my heart. And I thank you for your forgiveness that you granted me, and I, I ask you for grace to continue to live this way, to love, not hate, to honor, not show contempt. We repent of attitudes in our heart toward leaders of any kind that, that you would consider sinful. Show us those things. We lay our hearts before you and say, cleanse us. Take that ugliness out of our hearts. May we live as good citizens, involved citizens, citizens of political opinion, citizens who have a voice. May we do all those things, but may we do them absent contempt in our hearts. We receive the grace to walk in this in the days ahead in these challenging times in which we live. We accept our responsibility to be the agents of change, the salt and the light in the midst of a dark world. We thank you for your faithfulness to us in Jesus' name. Amen.